Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute and part of the Christians for Liberty Network. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and I have on for his third appearance on the Libertarian Christian Podcast, Connor Boyack, who is president of the Libertas Institute and a thought leader in the liberty movement. He has influenced millions of families through the creation of the Tuttle Twins books, guides, and now a TV show. And most importantly, he's living outside the law through his beekeeping practices and consumption of contraband honey. And today he joins us to talk about his Tuttle Twins guidebooks, including the most recent book, Modern Villains. Connor, thanks for joining us. (laughs) I love that intro. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This is great. <laughs> Good. I, I always make sure to give something to my guests in some capacity to make sure that they're not just doing me a favor, that they're enjoying the time we have. So <laughs> anyway, you've got a lot of books out there. I don't remember the actual number. I think it's like in the 30s in terms of like the number of books that are published that have your name on it. And obviously, you're fairly well known for the Total Twins franchise of books. And as many of us have sort of read and purchased and read through with our children, Our children have grown up in some ways with the Tuttle Twins, and I have teenagers now, and you've also adapted to the fact that people who got in early on with younger kids are also (laughs) have older kids now. And so you have books for slightly older children, and of course, these are easily good for adults, as we'll probably talk about. So talk a little bit about the evolution of the Tuttle Twins as sort of a franchise in the liberty movement, so to speak, and how you approach writing for these diverse audiences? Well, when we started out in 2014, we were just focused on producing children's books. People would say, what age range are these for? These are our kind of core storybooks that we're most known for. And we would reply, oh, you know, five to 11 years of age. It's kind of a broad age range. Mm -hmm. But what we found over time is that teenagers were reading these books, even though the format was beneath them age-wise. The ideas were often very fresh and meaning that they had never really encountered these ideas before. And so certainly the parents themselves, we started hearing a lot from mom and dad being like, hey, I never learned this in school. That made a lot of sense. Now I know how inflation works or whatever. So we ended up seeing these more as family resources rather than Mm -hmm. children's books because we were hitting such a wide age range. But still, we felt like the simple story format of the children's books had its limits. There's only so much that you can introduce content-wise into a 60-page fully illustrated book. So we decided to create a series of, actually two separate series of books for teenagers. The other one is their fiction books, kind of following the choose-your-own-adventure format. We call it choose-your-consequence. And so people, you know, trademark issues, obviously. And so we have a lot of fun with those. But then with these nonfiction guidebooks, it was I think the inspiration for this, I was at FeeCon. They don't hold this event anymore, but a few years ago, Fee held an event and they had this sampling of some of their books. And there was one there called like a guide to something. I don't even remember what it was, but I remember seeing that and being like, oh, guidebooks, that's a great idea. And so we ran with that. We now have, I think, five guidebooks. They're nonfiction on a wide range of topics. And so the idea is like these kids who have been grown up reading these books we can get them to chew even more deeply on some of these ideas by giving them, in this format, even more educational content 
beyond just the storybooks that we started with. Yeah, so these are, you know, more strictly nonfiction, basically. Yep. Okay. Slightly bit of a side note. Did Jordan Peterson collaborate with you at all on your most recent Tuttle Twins book? So we got his team's blessing to do the book. If, if you know this, but for the benefit of your audience, our children's storybooks, they're all kind of inspired by an original text, you know, I Pencil or The Law by Bastian or Economics in One Lesson by Hazlitt. So if the person's dead or whatever, we just kind of run with it and say, oh, we're doing it. And at the end of the book, we're like, hey, this is the person, you know, whose book ours is inspired by. But if that person, if that author is alive, we try and go get their blessing because we don't want to cause problems. So we got his blessing, but they chose not to do, we pitched a collaboration, but he had just signed on with Daily Wire and they're kind of focused on building out their own kids content. Mm, Yeah. Daily Wire kids or something like that. And so they felt like working with us might just cross streams in a way that the Daily Wire bosses might not like. So that was unfortunate. I thought that would have been a really fun opportunity to, partner up together but at least we got his blessing and so now those those rules for life are taught in a fun format to little kiddos do you know if he's read them or have you sent them copies and gotten feedback yeah we sent them copies we sent them to his daughter Michaela has like a six-year-old or something so we sent her a copy and so I presume so but I I don't have actual knowledge so I don't know (laughs) okay so the guides does your team write them or is this like solely you sitting down at a cabin remotely so you have no distractions and writing them yourself? <laughs> it's a little bit of both. In recent years, I have employed some ghostwriters and content creators to help, especially with like our history book. That's a team effort, both on the writing sure, and the illustrating yeah. side. And so for some of these book projects, I take more of kind of a mastermind route to kind of be lead writer, but then others are helping. So that just helps me produce content mm. a bit more quickly yeah. where... I can sit down and say, okay, here's what we want to talk about. Here's the different ideas. What's funny about this, this is a totally random aside, but I've been playing lately with chat GPT because it's like, if I can come up with the ideas and the master plan and here's all the content and here's the format, and then I can, whether I hire a ghostwriter or some college student or chat GPT, it's like, oh, hey, will you create some text around this topic in this format I'll have to go in and massage it and change it or whatever. But just that idea of accelerating your ability to work. Mm, yeah. Like, I don't love it necessarily, but I have been playing with it a little bit. I don't love it in the sense that it's not perfect. Like, the stuff that ChatGPT outputs isn't stellar stuff. But anyways, I'm always trying to find, like, where are those efficiencies to help yeah. us go further faster? So it's something we're dabbling with. I'll be curious to, I'm sure it'll just keep getting better and better and yeah. Before long, we'll just be reading books written by AI, and then that's really going to call into question <laughs> our humanity and what does it mean to be content creators or curious or, I don't know, just lots of fascinating questions there. Yeah, it's definitely, especially for parents who have kids who can sort of use this technology, it's sort of upending the, the way in which they can do schoolwork. And not in a way, and here's the thing, it's not like, oh, hey, you use that, you're cheating, although that can be true. But it's often more like, oh, you're using that. Well, shoot, maybe you don't need to learn what you thought, <laughs> what your teachers are exactly. assigning to you. Like it, it actually, from an adult perspective, challenges the base assumptions about how we need, what we need to learn. You know, like the quintessentials is you and I grew up with your teachers telling us you'll never carry around a calculator with you all the time. So you need to know how to do this. Yep. Well, jokes on them and they didn't know any better. Right. But now we right. sort of realize that that's foolish to think that, oh, you'll never need to know this and we can come up with marginal examples of 
when you would need to know this because, you know, your yep. phone is dead or something like that. But outside of that, this is changing the way that even adults think about what they expect of their kids. I think that's exactly right. We've definitely built an education system based on what's called the just-in-case model. In other words, we need to cram these mm. kids' heads full of so many facts and the Pythagorean theorem and mitochondrion is the powerhouse of the cell and all these things just in case they ever need to use this stuff in the future. When as adults, we all learn using a just-in-time, not just-in-case, but just-in-time. In other words, oh, my refrigerator broke. I need to now figure out what to do. Right. So just in time, I'm going to go watch a YouTube video or learn this stuff. And so that's a big part of what we're trying to do on the education side is really empower parents to say like, here's a different way to do it. What we've grown up with in the schools is inadequate and we need to do something totally different so that kids are educated in a way that speaks to their humanity rather than yeah. this weird artificial lab experiment that is the modern school. I know this isn't really part of the game plan for this conversation, but while we're on it, do you think that there is a portion of education that can be or ought to be a just-in-case kind of thing? I mean, there does seem to be, like Brian Kaplan talks about literacy and numeracy being sort of the only two things you really need, but I kind of regret not really paying attention in biology in high school, even though during 2020, it was a little tough for me to understand some of the scientific writings that were coming out regarding COVID. And I was just like, uh, it was a little over my head. So I, I talked to Norman about it because he's a scientist, but you know, not everybody has Norman Horn to talk to, to explain <laughs> tough concepts. I think there's definitely a balance to be struck. I don't, you know, for example, with homeschooling, there's a variety of methodologies that you can pursue. One of which is unschooling or child-led learning where the kids are just Lord of the flies figuring out what they want to do and you kind of give them free reign over their own educational upbringing. But I think with all things, there's balance. And so, for example, though my, my preference leans towards unschooling or, or rather letting the children be the driver's seat of their own bus of life rather than being a passenger that someone else is driving to destinations that they want. I believe that my kids should have a certain amount of control. But I do think from the balance side of things that as their father, my job is to expose them to all kinds of new information and experiences because for all they know, something that I expose them to a year from now randomly becomes their life purpose and passion. And but for the fact that I would have introduced them to that, they wouldn't have encountered it. So I feel yeah. like my role is kind of like the just in case, just in time. It's like, yeah, I do want to expose you to all these different concepts and give you these experiences just in case that ends up being part of your future. And so I do think there's a role for that, but I don't think that it should be an entire system where children are deprived of the flexibility they need to just focus on what interests them. So yeah. I guess balance is really what's important. Yeah, no, that's good. All right, back to our regular schedule. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little bit about Modern Villains. It's a little bit of a different approach in some sense, this guide. What was the idea behind it? How did you come up with the idea to see this as an important book? Well, as you know, we were talking before the show about our American history book, and that came out last July, but we've been working on that for like two years. And so we were really focused on history. And the way that we kind of market that particular history book is with the quote that we're all familiar with, that those who don't learn from the past are condemned to repeat it. And we all know this quote, we just suck at doing anything about it, right? Because kids today are not taught to learn from the past. They're simply taught about the past, if they're even taught much about the past at all. And so that's a very different teaching methodology. Teaching about the past is 
more like the passive museum experience, right? It's like, oh, look what they used to wear. Look at the muskets they fought with. Here's some hardtack that they had to eat. Okay, kids, on to the cafeteria. Time to continue with our day. Mm. It's a very passive review about history, learning about it. But when we learn from it, we shift our mindset and we're focused on extracting ideas and principles, values that can inform how we live today. So while we were working on that American history book, I was separately kind of thinking about the fact that we have just these modern totalitarians and we got North Korea and China and United States of America and (laughs) all all these people (laughs) who have just amassed massive amounts of power. And so I was thinking about the historical lessons as it pertains to some of the worst authoritarians throughout history. And what lessons can we learn from their rise to power and their rule? This had a danger. When we first started working on this, I was a little bit nervous because I didn't want it to become a book where we just share all these dark stories of horrible people throughout history and all the brutal murders and everything. Like That could just be an awful, awful book for teenagers to read. Michael Malice just did us a favor with the white pill lately. I just finished that. That's dark, man. So we already have that out in the world. It's really, really good. It's really worth reading. But that's already out there in the world, and you didn't want to create that. Didn't want to create that, especially for little kids, not little kids, but teenagers. We we didn't want to go that route. So the focus that we took was, yeah, we want to teach you who these guys were. I mean, they were all guys and what they did. But by understanding how they rose to power and understanding how the people around them supported this individual or tolerated this individual or collaborated with this individual, right? That's where the lessons are. It's not in the individual who rose to power. It's in the people. It's in the climate, the culture, the circumstances, because that's where I feel like we can observe, oh, wow, look, when Mussolini or Mao or Castro or whatever, when these people were trying to rise to power, look what they said to the people. Look at the political climate at the time and how people were desperate for a savior. Yeah. And so they were willing to tolerate this guy because he claimed to have a program to solve all their problems. So that's where we can start to be like, oh, okay, these people throughout history, like why did the Germans, there's a fascinating book called They Thought They Were Free, which I highly, highly recommend. It's written by Milton Mayer. He was an American journalist of Jewish heritage and German descent. During World War II, this guy is losing his mind because he's a journalist, so he's curious about what's going on in Germany. Because he's a German, he feels a kinship with these people. As a Jew, he's horrified with what's happening to the Jews. Right. And as an American, he's you know appalled by what's happening. So he decides to go over to Germany. He's interviewing all these people after World War II and from different walks of life. And he's trying to understand how did you go along with this, with the Nazis? How did you get to the point where you were supporting this? And so he's talking to bakers and teachers and politicians and all the rest. And I'll do it a profound injustice by trying to summarize this book into a few sentences because there's so many nuggets of insight in that book. Again, it's called They Thought They Were Free. But the basic summary is that people were habituated. It was all incremental. One individual said, look, if you had told us at the beginning where it would have gone, we would have objected. But because we didn't object to step number one and step number two, when it got to step number three, we didn't really speak out because we had become acclimatized to not speaking. Mm -hmm. And everything was so incremental that when we got to step four, we had habituated ourselves into a person who just 
goes along with it, makes rationalizations and so on and so forth. So to me, like looking at these modern villains more broadly, it all boils down to what are the lessons we can learn from how these people rose to power so that hopefully we can prevent similar things from happening in our day and shift our mindset and our culture such that these despots can't rise to power in a supposed emergency or crisis where they say, hey, I'll save you. And suddenly we're in a totalitarian dictatorship again. That's, that's the ultimate goal is to learn from the past so that we don't have to repeat it. You, know, you talked about how we can learn history through learning from mistakes in the past and that kind of thing, but you don't go back very far. I mean, you actually, you order these in the, the order of, I think it was birth year. So that's how you ordered your chapters. And so it starts with Napoleon, which is not yep. really that far back. I mean, it is for, I guess, a 15-year-old, <laughs> but <Yep. laughs> why not go further back? Well, I was trying to figure out the right approach here because at first it was the Tuttle Twins Guide to the World's Worst Villains or some, and then I'm like, okay, do we go back to Genghis Khan? Do we go back to... And so we decided to focus more on recent villains from the past couple of centuries for a variety of reasons, the chief one being that, well, two reasons. Number one, there's more original sources we could draw from and factual information where we could kind of hang our hat on and say, this is what happened. When you go back a millennia, it's just hard. So much of it is wrapped up in myth and legend and so forth. Mm. And so we liked that there was going to be far more information, but then also to the point that you made that even for a teenager, maybe it still feels long ago, the counter argument there is that it's recent enough that yes, even though it's 150 years or 200 years ago, like the world has changed a lot, but it's changed less than it did from back in the 1200s or whatever. So there's this relatability question of like, oh, that only happened a few decades ago. Like the world is familiar to them. Yes, exactly. Yeah, 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 for sure. So this obviously, even since Napoleon, you probably could have doubled the length of the book if you wanted to. (laughs) And so what were the criteria for choosing? And I'll ask a second question. What have been the most excluded villains that people ask you, why didn't you include that? Well, that's an interesting question. We haven't really got that pushback. We started with a longer list. I'd have to, it's been a year or something, so I'd have to go back and find it. But there were other people. We didn't really have like a set criteria. Ultimately, it was this question of like, who do we think should qualify to be in like a top 10 list? And I think we ended up with like, I don't know, 15, 20 or something like that. But we were trying to focus on who are the ones that yes, did a lot of bad things, but also that there's some insights there that we can glean, again, for that purpose of learning from the past. If there was something that just happened in a very like time-limited sense and there wasn't this broader cultural context, that felt like a story maybe less worth sharing. So we were trying to find the ones where this was like years-long or decades-long rule or process of rising to power where there was enough time to understand what was happening in the culture and so forth. The real question I get asked, and maybe you were planning this for later, but I'll bring it up now just in case you weren't. The real question they asked is, well, it's a two-part question. Number one is, why did we include a United States president? And then (laughs) the second part of that question that I sometimes get is, why did we pick Wilson over someone else? So... (laughs) See, I'm a libertarian. I know exactly why you chose Wilson. (laughs) Yeah, right. Although... (laughs) Well, I'm looking at this list. I think it's about 20 based on my just real quick glance here. And all of the people Wilson accepted are people who, if you looked down the list, an adult would look at that and say, yep, yep, yep. They belong here. They belong here. The one person that is like sort of counter expectational is the U.S. president. 
that you chose. Yep. And even people who are skeptical of U.S. presidents, and I'm sure there might be a lot of libertarians who are like, well, you chose Wilson, but you should have chosen Lincoln or you should have chosen whoever. Yep. You pick someone else. You should have chosen Reagan or, you know, whatever. It is interesting that as a libertarian, I kind of understood why you chose Woodrow Wilson. Although the reason you explain is actually something I didn't know about Wilson, which is that he was an avowed racist. Yeah. <laughs> I figured you chose him because of things like the Federal Reserve, and I'm sure that sort of was the gateway in some ways. Maybe not. You can elaborate on that a bit. Yeah, no, that's definitely right. Like the traditional concerns with him are World War One and the Federal Reserve and the income tax and all these different things that are happening at the dawn of the progressive era. But there was also this aspect where he was just an authoritarian himself because of the culture he grew up in and the attitudes that he had. So it was tough. We waffled between, certainly Lincoln is an easy choice, but also FDR. Like in a lot of ways, mm. we felt like... You threw in FDR though as a remark about what he did bad, I think, right? Yeah, yeah. So you got so, that I mean, he needed an honorable mention, right? <laughs> and so... yes. To me, it's like we could do a separate book all about all the flaws and atrocities of the U.S. presence. And maybe someday yeah, we yeah. will just to try and dethrone in people's minds the greatness and grandeur of these people who in their own way are kind of these mini despots who, you know, as the federal government grows and executive power like yeah. centralizes in this apex of the presidency, it's just going to get worse and worse, I feel like. Yeah. And the reason I noticed Wilson in comparison to all the others is that you're not setting out to simply be provocative and say, well, all these people you thought were good are actually villains. Even with Wilson, you don't quite do that. And so it's very clear. You go through the list and you're like, okay, yeah, these are villains. No one's going to say, I mean, I'm going to ask you here in a little bit to say something good about a few of them. But most people, except maybe Karl Marx, people are going to say, oh, yeah, of course they're on this list. <laughs> so mm -hmm. you're not setting out to sort of unindoctrinate people, which actually I think is kind of a good thing. My guess is that as you were writing this book and doing research on the people that you had a cursory knowledge of pretty much all of them. What are some really valuable lessons that you learned personally as you were doing the research? So one of the things that stood out to me was the patterns that were kind of consistent through so many of these stories. I mean, a lot of times there was like abuse in the home, there was neglect, fatherless household, this kid feeling victimized and having to kind of overcompensate for that, you know. So there were definitely some interesting familial dynamics that were in play. But then also just like, again, so I, I wrote a book years ago, 2014, I think called Feardom. And the subtitle is How Politicians Exploit Your Emotions and How You Can Stop Them. Mm. And I wrote that book kind of in a post 9-11, like reviewing the war on terror and how everyone had been scared into surrendering their freedom in the name of safety kind of the Benjamin Franklin idea. Right. And I looked at stuff from decades before and so forth, but it was very heavily post 9-11 influence. And when I published the book, I was kind of sad in the sense that like, I felt that that book would never not be relevant just because that's such a cyclical thing where people get scared into, we talk about this in the Tuttle Twins and the Leviathan crisis, just how Leviathan or the state grows because we're repeatedly scared and, and so forth. So to this pattern that we see with these villains, less on the side of the villains, but again, that cultural context again and again and again, what you see are people who are scared. The community, the citizenry, they're worried about some threat. They're worried about economic privation. They're worried about some external threat. And so inevitably, these dictators are able to offer a supposed solution to the problem. And that's something you see 
throughout so many of these stories of that pattern. You see it here in America too. And that to me is like the biggest, there's that quote, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. In other words, I should have learned enough from to not be fooled again. And yet we as a people are repeatedly, we fall into this trap. So it's something we see in the historical record from so many of these villains. It's something we see in modern America. I don't know how to solve for that. Like that's the biggest thing on my mind is that, can you mitigate that? One silver lining of all this COVID stuff, you might say that so many people have been red-pilled and we would never let that happen again. And I just don't believe that. Like I, I believe there's some tiny minority who will, again, like even with COVID, when people were saying no to the vaccine or mask or whatever, and there were people who were seeing through some of the shenanigans, they were a minority. So maybe our minority is like slightly bigger, but I feel like humanity, again, is going to fall into these same traps. So that's something where as I was doing the research on this, it's like, oh yeah, again and again and again, you see that pattern emerging. Yeah, I'm with you. I do believe that it can happen here. It can happen again because every generation has its own way of processing and understanding the misdeeds of the past. And here we are 30 some years after the fall of the Soviet Union, and we are debating in our own country the principles that supposedly were part of communism. And we're debating them at a level of there are actual people who believe communism is workable that are elected. I don't think you and I growing up thought that that was even possible. The fall of the Soviet Union, there it's over, right? All those people went somewhere. (laughs) Yep. As I'm reading your book, you make a comment in the chapter about Karl Marx, about him being an anti-Semite. And there were a handful of sort of personal things about Marx that most people would look at that and say, yeah, that's pretty unsavory. He was probably a bad husband or he was a bad husband. How valuable is that kind of thing when you're telling kids about a person's character and stuff? Because you could probably do that for like, the Tuttle Twins Guide to Heroes, right? And so painting the story about a person's character in such a way that makes us just dislike them because they cheated on their wife or they lived off inheritance while eschewing wealth. I guess I wonder how valuable is it to tell somebody that, oh, he was an anti-Semite and had all these bad things. It seems a little bit ad hominem. Yeah. And I often wonder, I'm not saying that you did anything wrong. I'm just like, I don't understand the value of this in your mindset. That's a fair critique. In response, I would say from why we kind of went that route or included some of those things, these individuals did not commit atrocities in a vacuum. So part of it for us was like, what are all the little factors that added up to produce this person? And what was their upbringing? What was the cultural environment? What were their aspirations? But then also like, what were some of their broader attitudes and faults and personal foibles that might have contributed to them becoming the type of person that they did. So what we were really trying to get at is just a peek inside of who this person is and all those variables that made them up. I do agree with you, like you can go too far and bring up unrelated things in this ad hominem way and maybe we overextended ourselves a little bit. But the intent was to say, if we want to understand how some of these complex characters rose to power and were able to do what they did, we got to see that like, there's these broader social breakdowns and personality issues or mental disorders or all these things Mm -hmm. that if left untreated or unresolved can compound into producing a person of this type. And so maybe by understanding the need for committed marriage rather than serial adultery or racial equality rather than anti-Semitism or whatever, right? Just this idea that like a person who has a checkered past 
might be a little bit more, I don't know, predisposed to becoming more of a, an authoritarian. So that was at least the intent, trying yeah. to figure out like what makes these people tick? Yeah. And yeah. what happened in the past that led them down this path? Yeah, no, I think that's a fair answer. And I should probably be clear. I don't, I actually know about Marx that he was an adulterer. I don't know if you actually mentioned that in the book. So I, I wanted to be clear to our listeners that I wasn't saying that you said that. I yeah, I'm kind of like skimming the book here. I'm like, did you actually say that? I don't know if we you did. included Yeah, that. we did. Oh, you did. Okay. Yeah. Okay, yep. you did. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't infusing my knowledge of Karl <laughs> Marx. I read, I think it was Peter Singer. Yeah, it was Peter Singer wrote a book in like one of those like Oxford introductions back in like 1982 on Karl Marx. And I remember reading about this stuff. And then I read another bunch of things about Karl Marx. I'm like, wow, Singer really didn't highlight some of these things. <laughs> it was a book entirely <laughs> on Marx. Anyway, okay, no, I, I like that answer. That's good. I think it does give a context and it wasn't just random, hey, here's bad things about the person. So that kind of avoids the ad hominem way of thinking or critique in and of itself. Another question about this, how much did religious belief either by the people who you're highlighting, these men who you were highlighting, factor into their agenda and their rise to power and maybe even their rhetoric in gaining notoriety? Yeah, that's a super interesting question. I mean, certainly when you look at Marx or Mao or some of these people, very atheistic, very anti-religion, and yet then you have other people like, you know, Mugabe and others who were very religious. They'd call themselves like Christian socialists. Mugabe, for his part, he went to a, a missionary school when he was a kid, and he went to mass all the time. And so over and over again, you see a lot of these individuals, whether from an anti-religion perspective or this kind of weird nationalistic, I would call it a corrupt Christian perspective, are trying to impose their values and whims on other people. So there was kind of a mix, right? Some of these villains had a religious background, others had quite the opposite. And that didn't really seem to be a necessarily an indicator of are religious people less likely to become dictators. And I don't know. It's kind of a mixed bag, and it feels to me that there were plenty of people who, despite having a Christian background, did not really let Christianity, per se, inform their political aspirations and attitudes. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like the, this compartmentalized thing. Like, oh, yeah, I went to you know Mass, or I went to Bible school, or whatever, as a kid. But that's a completely divorced reality from the present circumstances that I'm in today, and to me, as Christians, we, we should absolutely be intertwining our faith with our so-called politics because it's a standard of living in general, not just, oh, on Sunday, I mm. act this way and the rest of the days yeah. I just do whatever I want and think best. And so that's what you see in a lot of these people. Despite having a religious background, it doesn't appear to have influenced their adult lives in any substantive way. Yeah. Hi, everyone. This is Alex Bernardo. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may want to check out the other shows in the Christians for Liberty Network, such as my podcast, the Protestant Libertarian Podcast, where I explore the relationship between biblical studies, theology, political philosophy, history, and economics. The Christians for Liberty Network is dedicated to bringing a variety of content you love, just like what you're hearing on this episode right now. Go ahead and finish this great episode. Then you can go and check out the Protestant Libertarian Podcast. All right, I'm going to put on my leftist hat for just a moment for one question. All right. Why aren't women represented in this book, Connor? <laughs> oh, man, we looked around. We tried to find, you know, All women where, are where... good. Is that the message? <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Feminists should love this book. It's just a man-hating book. The sad nature of a 
patriarchal type of society is that men by their nature are likely more aggressive and more willing to do these things. And historically, governments have been primarily run by men over the decades and centuries. So we actually tried to, just like we kind of picked one U.S. president <laughs> to throw in there, we're like, there's got to be a woman. There's got to be some, but, but like... I mean, were there any candidates that were like, okay, let's consider this person? I couldn't find any. So if anyone knows of a good one, maybe... What about the founder of Planned Parenthood? Yeah, there you go. That's actually not you a might, bad You idea. might go with that. Sanger. Yeah, Margaret Sanger. I think that's who it was. I mean, for us, like there's certainly women who have ideas that we object to from an outside perspective, but kind of the criteria here was these have to be people in political control. Mm, and so that, okay. by its very nature, kind of excluded these women like Margaret Sanger and others who I might have wanted or, to include. What about but, Thatcher? Could you have included her maybe? That's interesting. Wasn't she the one? No, that was Madeleine Albright who said that it was worth it to kill all the kids oh, in Iraq. Yeah, right? but she wasn't quite in, in your political power yeah, criteria. Yeah, she was more respect. like a secretary role Man, or whatever she was. An if advisor. only Trump had lost, you could have included a woman. Clinton, I know. I was waiting. We were waiting to publish this book. To see, No, just kidding. But we can always issue a an addendum or a revised edition. So if Kamala Harris <laughs> ever becomes president here, we'll have to issue a corrected version to throw a woman in there. <laughs> All right. Well, that's an acceptable answer to me, at least. I don't know if other feminists want to uh, would want to hear this and say, no, no, we need to have representation. We can send you some. <laughs> All right. I need you to say something, even if it's fairly trivial, something good about the following people. Tell me something good about Adolf Hitler. Something good about Adolf Hitler. He <laughs> He had a very strict health code. And so... Well, at least publicly. Some of these people have very different public and private lives, but sure. publicly held himself out for having a good health code. What's interesting, like for my faith, where we have like this word of wisdom, this health code, back decades ago when all this was happening, they're like, oh, look, Hitler has a health code, kind of like <laughs> oh, we no. do. I'm like, are you insane? What are you? <laughs> like, oh, man. <laughs> all right. Say something good about Karl Marx. <sighs> Karl Marx. Um, oh, gosh. He was a, like, even though I totally object to his ideas and kind of the foundational premise, he was an interesting thinker. Like when you actually read Das Kapital or whatever, like, I don't know, there's some interesting stuff in there that he's, he's not an idiot. He was, had a lot of foibles and laziness and mooched off people, but he had a very kind of interesting mind. I wish it would have been applied differently, but it's a smart dude. I'll give sure. him that. Okay. All right. Woodrow Wilson. Oh, Woodrow Wilson. So what to say good about this guy? I'm going to go a bit abstract. I feel like a lot of these people, they have, I don't want to call them good intentions, but like they're not inherently evil. A lot of these aren't necessarily evil people. I don't think Woodrow Wilson was totally evil. I think he was so caught up in his worldview and this progressive mindset that he felt like when you look at Edward Bernays, for example, who right at the same time he's writing propaganda, he's working with Wilson and mm -hmm. selling the World War One to people and propagandizing the public, these people felt like what they were doing was for an important purpose. Almost like they were having to orchestrate kind of the chessboard in a way that would have the best advantage, but they felt like they could manipulate people and move them around. So I want to say what I might say nice about Wilson is that like with FDR and others who have this very kind of progressive mindset, I think they have... I don't know, an okay heart, much like people who are saying $15 minimum wage or more welfare. Like these people are trying to help other people. 
They don't want people to suffer. They want good outcomes. So I I think the intent is often decent. It's just the means and the implementation sucks and and is counterproductive. But I do think that there's at least a noble intent with Wilson and others like him. Yeah. Okay. Well, in the spirit of asking you some simple questions, I'm going to do a lightning round if you're okay with that. I've got 10 questions here. These are somewhat related, not entirely about the modern villains thing, but this is just about getting to know you and some of the ways you think. All right. Do you know your Enneagram number and or your Myers-Briggs personality type? I know Myers-Briggs. I'm ISTJ. Okay. Is Twitter doomed to failure under Elon Musk? Definitely not. I think he's going lean and mean, and I'm actually bullish on Twitter. I think uh, okay. he gave a presentation recently where it was all about that's where like the world's greatest thinkers are. They're not on Instagram or Facebook. All the all the big <laughs> thinkers are there. So I'm I'm optimistic for Twitter. Okay. What is your go-to for non-local news consumption? Honestly, the way I approach news is I let social media curate news for me. So if I see the same news article bubble up four or five, six times, I'll finally go read it. So I let others be kind of the filter to see yeah, what's okay. important. So social media is kind of my news filter. Okay. What is the most significant threat to the liberty movement right now? The people inside the liberty movement and their counterproductive infighting and waste of energy. I compare it to letting off steam. We're great keyboard warriors and tweeters and all the rest. And we're letting off steam with all our criticisms. But steam, if channeled and collected and channeled and applied, can power a friggin' locomotive. We can do amazing things with that energy if it's focused. So I think we are our own worst enemy, and few in the movement have the right focus and approach and tone when it comes to persuasion and actually trying to grow the movement. Either you're really good at metaphors off the cuff, or you've already rehearsed that locomotive steam. (laughs) Oh, I've used it a few times. That's one of my (laughs) go-tos. Okay, okay. I was like, wow, that's impressive. That's impressive. (laughs) What's the most threatening cultural phenomenon in America right now? Gender ideology. And the reason I picked that one is because I think the broader underlying current is a war on truth. I think when we move away from objective reality and a shared set of facts, we move into subjective morality. You do you, speak your truth, do what you want. No one can tell you what is good or evil or anything mm-hmm. like that. Except us. Except, Except us. Except us. Yeah, we'll <laughs> tell you what, what's right. White person. So I think gender ideology, just questioning the nature of humanity itself and whether people identifying something means that they're truly that thing, it's a frontal assault, ultimately, I think, on this question of what is objective reality. All right. Even in a whimsical, non-serious moment, have you ever thought about running for governor or president? No, I have considered running for the legislature many times. I've been encouraged a lot over the years. I finally sat down one time and I drew up a pros and cons list of it. There were like two or three pros and about 25 cons. So (laughs) (laughs) I, in the position that I'm in running this think tank and being able to do everything that we do, I feel like I have far more influence than if I was stuck having to sit in committee meetings or deal with issues I didn't care about. So we're able to laser focus on moving the right ideas forward and having a bit of independence like that, I think makes us more effective than if I were to run for office. All right. If you were president, what role would you assign Tom Woods in your cabinet? Ooh, that's a fun one. I don't know. That's tough because I'm thinking like, Secretary of State, and we can get some fun foreign affairs stuff, but Treasury would be interesting. He's got an economics background. 
honestly, <laughs> I think I'd make him my press secretary. <laughs> oh, I think man. I'd have him That's go good. talk to the media every day and, and respond to their you questions. You sure you wouldn't want Michael Malice doing that part, though? Oh, that's a, that's a good, yeah, he'd be he fun, might, too. I think he might be Tom for the job, at least on that front. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that, that'd be All fun. Right, what Maybe about, can... I'm going to throw you an easy one here. What would you have Scott Horton do? <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah, no, secretary of so-called defense. Yeah. Right. A secretary of offense. War secretary. Yep. Yep. <laughs> That's a great, like, you know, you see Scott Horton on Fox News doing an interview and it's like, Scott Horton, war secretary. Those are words you'd never see. <laughs> All right. Last one. Dave Smith. Uh, what would I have Dave Smith do? I think I would have him be secretary of education. I think he'd be someone good to help shut that thing down. Okay. I can see him That's having a, good one. a lot of fun with that. Yeah. You've done a lot of travels. I'm sure you've met with a lot of great people. What respected person have you yet to meet but would love to have dinner with? Jordan Peterson. There you go. That's a good one. Now, I, Jordan is, well, or Joe Rogan. I would love to, I mean, Joe just seems like a hoot to hang out with. But yeah, no, I, I think Jordan Peterson has affected so many people's lives positively. He's very interesting on Twitter now. He's become much more bellicose and snarky and snippy with people. But the dude is just such a deep thinker and I would love the opportunity to sit down and connect with them. Yeah. How big of a threat is AI to human flourishing? I've been thinking a lot about this. I It's such a mixed bag, I feel like. It's like guns. I mean, they do wonders to help equalize threats and allow a woman to defend herself against an assailant, but they're also used by gangs and murderers and the government, but I'm repeating myself, <laughs> to commit all kinds of atrocities. So I feel like AI, it's going to do such amazing things for human efficiency, and all kinds of positive societal impacts. But it's absolutely going to be leveraged by the state. And we're going to have social credit scores up the wazoo and all kinds of horrific, dystopian type of government powers now. So it's tough. Do I want to shut down technological progress because I don't want the state to utilize that same tech? Or is there an area of blockchain or whatever where we can decentralize things enough such that you don't have these huge mega states yeah. taking advantage of the tech. So that's my concern is with a centralized state where we're in a bad position for someone to abuse the tech. Yeah. All right. This is the last lightning round question. And then I'll just ask where people could buy your book. Me personally, I play this game sometimes when we get together with like new libertarians, sort of an icebreaker kind of thing. And it's what is your one deviation from being a true libertarian? And I'll share mine first to give you an idea is. I think that everybody should take a Sabbath. And so I would reinstate blue laws. I'd call them green laws so that the left would buy in. So what is your one <laughs> deviation from being a true libertarian? Oh, that's interesting. I would compel every kid to read Tuttle Twins books in public school so that we can finally uh, unbrainwash the masses. And I would make Tuttle Twins required reading in elementary and middle school. I'm going to tell you the adverse effects of that, Connor. Okay. All of the state apparatus is going to hire Abram X. Kendi to write a series of children's books that will also be <laughs> imposed on, on our children. <laughs> See, again, it's that trade-off. You can do good things with a tool and then you can do bad things with a tool. So, I mean, the fun, the more like provocative answer for me, even though it doesn't really work for your question necessarily, is abortion. Because the libertarian community is so split down the middle on this mm, question okay. of you know property rights versus life. And so... I get people saying, oh, but a true libertarian, you know, like, well, I think you can just as plausibly make a... So to me, abortion's a big one. I very much am on kind of the pro-life side and feel like parents should be able to kill their offspring. And and so people challenge me for not being a true libertarian for mm, having that position. I see. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, that's definitely a challenge that we face when you are on the pro-life side. So where can people buy the Tuttle Twins Guide to Modern Villains? And are there perks for them buying it at a certain place versus just ordering it somewhere else? So it's on Amazon, but yeah, we sell it at tuttletwins.com slash products. And then you'll see the whole product list. What people mostly do is they'll buy the bundle of guidebooks together because then you're getting a little discount when you're buying them. We got a guidebook on entrepreneurship. We got one on logical fallacies, courageous heroes, and cognitive biases. So we're teaching all kinds of fun stuff. If you've got someone in your life who's 13 and up, definitely makes for a good little gift. And so buy the bundle, tuttletwins.com slash products is where you can find it. Yeah, and I, I would just say that the Tuttle Twins Guide series is beautiful hardcover, and they're actually not like large hardcover. And I'm sort of a like, a book has to look and feel good in my hands kind of person. <laughs> I do read on a Kindle sometimes, but I love good looking, good typeset, good designed, well-designed books that have good grammar in them, unlike the way I just spoke. Connor, thank you for <laughs> joining me for this episode. I appreciate your time. And as always, I'm sure we'll talk in the future. Thanks, Doug. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.